older and you have kids and maybe even when you run a company for a while, you you lose all sense of time and time has no it has no meaning anymore because what used to seem like a year now it seems like 10 and vice versa. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out on my end, living in New York, how much that just warps one sense of time. Uh-huh. This is going to sound really cheesy and cliche, but I honestly think Donald Trump has completely destroyed any sense of time that I have. Yeah, me too. He's warped everything. Everything feels like yesterday and a million years ago all at the same time. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate we've given him that much power over us at so many different levels. But yeah, I guess we've I never really thought about how he's distorted the space time continuum. But hey, whatever. He did that, too. It feels like he's got the infinity gauntlet. (laughs) Yeah. What a bad guy. He really is a bad guy. <laughs> He's our Hitler, basically. <laughs> God, there's something today. Oh, there, there were two things I saw today. There was something about, and we won't make this a political podcast, but obviously we got to get this out of the way at the top. Yeah. One of them was there was some sort of edict from the White House of them um, making sure that all of the um, the, the embassies, well, oh. no, all, well, there was that, mm-hmm. which was really good, but all the embassies, none of them could fly rainbow flags. Oh. And then there was the... The USS McCain. No, but I mean the the rainbow flag is more offensive. It's yeah, like yeah, yeah, way more offensive yeah. than McCain. Whatever. That's just a political rival. The, but. the McCain thing was just like, what, what a silly dipshit we have for president. <laughs> yeah, what a silly dipshit. <laughs> like every, every time, every time you hear something and it's like it is kind of amusing, like what a just a petty piece of garbage he is. Yeah. But since the last time we spoke, you've become a uh, a television celebrity. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> Uh, begrudgingly, that's, yeah, that seems to be, no, I mean, like, begrudgingly or not, there's, it's, it's double-edged, but yeah, that, that is a thing that probably a, a, I get the most recognition for. And I say double-edged, it go back and forth. Obviously, positive edge is, it allowed us to do a lot of great, you know, a lot of work with, um, with a big client and bring in, nice amount of revenue for the for the business which helps keep us going on other things the a negative is that is that the work i want to be most known for is that the work i want to be most visible connected with my company probably not and then a positive is that um people that i know tend to see it a lot so they're reminded of my existence which is of course like one of our biggest fears and why we <laughs> all stay on social media is we're we're afraid that everybody's going to forget us if we're not if we're not constantly updating and posting. So that's nice. And basically anytime I ever see anybody um, who I haven't seen for a while, they're telling me I was in, you know, I was, I was visiting my parents in Waukegan or I was on a business trip in a hotel or I was at a sports bar and I saw you and I said, there's Adam. And I realized people get really excited about yeah, it. And that's, that's nice. nice. Um, so that, that's a, that's a big plus for me. It's a way for me to to like remind all the people that I love that I'm still there and I love them still. I don't watch a lot of television. I, I cut the cord many, many years ago. Too, there was a point that, you know, crossed over from, from like, Oh, that's interesting. Adam's on TV to Adam is on TV all the time. <laughs> yeah. And I don't really get a good sense of that on a sort of like a bigger cultural level. What it, what it means, obviously there are like these known spokes figure type characters that like the Verizon guy or flow, uh, flow from progressive, all of these, um, you know, the Kellogg's 
frosted flakes tiger <laughs> he's recognized every time he walks <laughs> yeah. down the street <laughs> all these people and and they're like sort of known cultural figures but i think that my, my i i have no way of knowing what what my what who i what what i represent or who i am in this in the like in the zeitgeist or the public sort of like consciousness i don't know whether it's like oh that's a character who represents this brand or oh it's kind of like this this amorphous blob of a bearded man who's on commercials that i see all the time and it's it's kind of funny because people don't often remember what the commercial is that they see me on it's just like you, you, oh on the car thing on yeah. the car thing you're the like you do carmax right you or know? even even yeah exactly <laughs> or or even if they do get that i mean this is something i was talking to hannibal about cuz you know he I mean, he's, he's actually legitimately like famous, yep. but he's still at that level where he had crossed over from being a stand up to being like in movies sometimes where, and I'm fascinated with this level of fame of the they recognition and the, maybe they do recognize you from a commercial or maybe they thought they went to high school with you. Right. Exactly. Yes. It's funny that, that, um, in between level of fame, especially with somebody like Hannibal, because to comedy people, he's a God. So that means anybody, anytime he's out in public and somebody does recognize him and knows him by face and by name, he's there at a level of adoration. And this is something I think that he struggles with as much or more than most. You know, obviously we, we can't pick the things we're famous for mm-hmm. and he's famous as the Cosby guy. Oh, bummer. That's kind of what broke him in a way. Like yeah. he was like against us, like, you know, New York, LA comedy nerd people yeah. knew who Hannibal Burris was, yeah. but then he did the Cosby thing yeah, I remember and that. then th- that kind of rocketed him to fame. So, you know, you want to be grateful of the fact that people maybe recognize you or at least like appreciate what you do in some respect, but you can't really choose the way, the context in which they approach you. Yeah, definitely. There, You're right. There's some stigma to that fame because of, of that, you know, the, the, the spark that ignited it. Ultimately, of course, it was positive. Yeah. But does is that the thing he wants to be known yeah. for? I'm sure it's not. It's funny though, like, you know, I was kind of like, I first gained recognition public recognition in a very marginal marginal context in the tech community so you know dub dub wwdc was just a few days ago mm-hmm. and i went up to san jose and i went to the layers conference was an alternate conf- design conference that goes on at the same time so i go in that community you know mostly to see friends mostly to sort of like be in that environment of like let's celebrate the intersection of tech and creativity mm-hmm. again but that is the one context where I am a famous person. And it's super fun for me and slightly alarming that if I go to like, if I go to the live talk show, if I go to the talk show, you know, to Gruber's, uh, yeah, to yeah. Gruber's thing. And there's like a line down a couple of blocks outside the theater and I walk past and, and, you know, there's like a lot of side glances because, you know, most of those people in line kind of know who I am. And that's super fun. I've been on, you know, Gruber's show mm-hmm. and stuff, but also like maybe they know me from Sandwich and, or maybe they know from You Look Nice Today. Maybe they know from Computer Show. That is where, if there's one place in the world where I get to feel like that sort of level of marginal famous, that's, that's <laughs> it. And then I come and then I leave that environment and I, and it's an environment where people come up to talk to me, which feels great. You know, people come up and they tell me what they like about me and then yeah. they listen to what I say for a while. Yeah. And and what can really be better for confidence or just for the ego than that? And then I come away from that after a couple of days. I come home 
my my kids don't care. My partner doesn't care. Yeah. My my the folks at the office don't don't care about that stuff. You're also so, just like, where were you? Like, where was my wife or girlfriend when <laughs> when all these people are around? Because that would be nice. Oh yeah, you yeah. know that would be nice to be like sitting at a restaurant and have somebody come up to you and have you sign something. That is pretty dope. And my favorite my favorite moment of recognition, not to name drop. But it was years and years ago when I was doing Put This On, that mm. men's style series mm-hmm. with Jesse Thorne. And my partner, Roxana, was doing her own style website called Nerd Boyfriend. It was around 2010, 2011, maybe. And um, we went to go see a screening, like the premiere screening of the movie um, Mystery Team, mm. which is the Derek, mm-hmm. you know, Derek comedy film. And then after this screening, we're all standing out on the street. And Donald Glover is out there. And even at that point, yeah. I mean, obviously Donald Glover is Donald Glover, super mega superstar now. Multi, he was always a shooting multi, star, right? Yeah, I mean, was, it was clear that he was going to make it. But back then, we, even back then, we all knew he was a god. Yeah. So he's standing there on the sidewalk after the show. Ro- Roxana and I are about to go back to our car and leave because we're awkward. And then he looks over at both of us and he says, put this on and nerd boyfriend, right? And we just nearly shat our pants. I mean, we like shat each other's pants. And then, and then he came over and we chatted with him for a while. I got his cell phone number. <laughs> he invited us to a party. And then the friendship disbanded very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> From that, you were done with him. You you yeah, got what you needed out of that relationship. But it's kind of like that's the one, the most yeah. gratifying thing that's ever happened, fame wise. And and I think I feel like I'm done. <laughs> you know how how does one reluctantly get on? camera obviously you've been doing the production for a while you had been doing it for a while before that you've got some interest in at the very least being in front of a microphone you know you'd been doing the podcast for a while Mm -hmm. but it sounds like you kind of got pulled into that kicking and screaming a little bit yeah not necessarily kicking and screaming except that i never assumed that i would be the best one to do it just like i didn't my, my assumption with like something like you look nice today it was like a reluctance to the degree that to the degree that i always thought that i was i, I was the weakest one of the trio like i was you know i'm, I'm kind of the, the and I'm, I'm sure a lot of people who adore appreciate comedy can identify with this is that feeling of being in a circle of really funny people and you're just kind of there to watch and like you, you know feel like you're treading water yeah, sometimes. It's, yeah it's really hard to like always have the confidence and the clarity of mind to think of the witty thing to say right then and there and then the confidence to say it so you kind of always like take the back seat and that's okay and that's sort of like part of your identity and so i was kind of always that guy and that the thing about being that that guy or that person is that you don't assume that you're gonna you should should be the one on camera you should be front and center character you know that everybody's supposed to be looking at for 90 seconds so i, I it was always just this hesitation around the the idea that i just didn't think that i i I didn't think that I would be the most compelling person. And it wasn't really until you know the first couple of videos that clients asked me to be that I started to sort of you know reluctantly believe them that for whatever reason, I could be a character that can be trusted with this information and trusted to convey this information. And it was a pretty different persona than the one that I'd been doing on on my podcast with Scott and Merlin, because that guy was a little bit more, again, back, back, back of the room, kind of Mm -hmm. like saying the every so often saying the odd, you know, witticism or something, or 
you know, but I w- definitely wasn't dominant. So this new character that I started doing with Sandwich was just the guy who's like a little bit awkward, but he's there for a purpose and he's there to say a thing and he says the thing and then and then move and then moves on. The word character is really strange from the standpoint of you know you're essentially describing clearly two different parts of yourself. I yeah. mean, you were being yourself with Scott and Berlin. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like, it looks like, I mean, I don't know you well, but we've interacted uh-huh. a number of times. It seems like you're pretty much being yourself on camera as well. Sure. But you hit it on the mark. There are so many facets mm. to every person and you choose at any point what to reveal. But to character people. implies some artifice. I guess it does, but I, I would sort of like, I'd up that a little bit by saying that everything is artifice. Any anything that is not sure. internal is artifice. I mean, and you live in Los Angeles and you make videos <laughs> for a living, so you're very keen, right? <laughs> and and I think that it's less about it's less the the artifact the artifice is less about like the additive participation. It's it's more about the subtractive participation in in that you're choosing. Especially, you know, with, with things like a podcast that you edit or, or these sure. commercials that you shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot and do many takes, you're really like cultivating what it is you don't want people to see. And tr- trust me, I'm not, especially in the beginning when I was cutting everything, you see a lot of stuff about yourself that you don't want people to see. So artifice in the sense that you're in real time. You know, you, you in in real time, you don't get very much opportunity to edit and remove the parts of yourself that you'd prefer people don't see. But anything like this, like the podcast we're recording right now or the commercials they make, you get that chance to to really like hone it and make it right. And the funny part is that people don't know the difference. People yeah. on the other side of yeah. this experience don't know that it's if you've done your job right, they don't know that it's been edited at all. And they think and that's why we have cultures of celebrity is because people assume that the the the, the highly curated and el- edited versions of the people that they like are the true <laughs> versions of those people and not you know very cultivated i suspect part of the reason why when you were dealing with clients you were talking to them about production and they you know zeroed in on something is that you know is that there's a realism there that there's something real about you as a person that you're not a Kardashian. You know what I mean? You're not like, you're not somebody who is, who is like been necessarily working their entire life to be on screen. And that is clearly part of the appeal. Yeah. There's a lot hanging out. There's like a lot of rough edges and there's not a highly visible, um, there's not highly visible evidence of trying to make perfect. Trying too hard. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, cause that's, that's sort of like, you look at the, the – I apologize for, you know, you know, using the example of Kardashians because it's it feels feels like why give them more attention. But, but you know, they the Kardashians are the perfect example of like what it looks like when an image is perfected for mm. consumption. Yeah. And I, yeah, I could say to your point that I, I'd probably represent the op- opposite of that because even from the first videos, like the first one that I the, – to launch Square – I hadn't shaved. I hadn't gotten a haircut. I just sort of wore whatever, (laughs) you know, my shirt was wrinkled. And I guess that at that point there was something refreshing about, about somebody who like hadn't tried to, you know, perfect the image. Clearly you had some interest in, in, in something performative from the standpoint of doing a podcast or these other things, even though you were reluctant or at least it was unexpected. Have you learned to enjoy that aspect of things? Um, perf- yeah, 
I I do. I I mean I like I I enjoy it a lot more than I used to. To go, to be on set and like be in front of a room of people and try to have to do the dialogue. I think I used to sweat it a lot more, especially when there, there's a bigger crew and you're trying to remember your lines and mm. you're feeling like, okay, I'm supposed to be saying something that's sort of funny. Nobody in here is laughing. <laughs> My self-confidence sort of like gets chipped away take by take by take. And that's something that, you know, you're, you're sort of like, you're giving too much power to that feedback loop in that, in that context. I suspect that that's probably one of the hardest things about being a porn actor is it's <laughs> like, it just seems like the least sexy situation you can be in. Yeah. You, you will in that instance i think you would have to forget that anybody else is is there in the room or god you know i think that there's just like a whole set of skills and tools that adult performers use that i have i would have no idea sure i wouldn't even yeah i wouldn't even be able to guess at how they how they get good at what they do i mean how do those conversations go early on though of somebody just kind of floated the idea of you versus was there a financial aspect of it was it not wanting to necessarily like pay a professional i mean you know and you know this as well as anyone buddy uh you get paid a lot of money to be in those spots um well not for non-union jobs mm-hmm. but like so no financial was never a consideration in fact it's kind of the up op- up op- the inverse correlation um it's the client usually pays more for me to be in the in the thing than they would just to pay an actor. But you know, you just have to consider what the added value is of having me, who's this sort of like known entity, representing and endorsing the thing. Uh, early on, it was really just it was sheer luck of having put myself on camera to promote my own app, and then that being the evidence that Jack Dorsey needed to want me to be on camera for his app. And then that the outcome of that, you know, video being the evidence that Flipboard needed to put me on camera for their app. And that just kind of snowballed in that way. And it took, took really like, took really like three videos for me to cement that thing. And then what I learned early on after, like I, I got an email from Apple, like the head of the motion and video group at Apple right after those those first couple of videos we got on the phone and we we talked for like 2 hours and he said that there might be an upcoming project that you know they'd be curious about having my involvement on and then he you know so we we talked for a bit and then and then he said he'd get back in touch and then what i learned much later on it didn't it went away the opportunity what i learned much later on was that they were considering me to be sort of like at the time the the um the iCloud guy like introducing or it might have even been mobile me at that mm. point or mm-hmm. me.com to sort of like teach people what that what that was that uh, that whole um ecosystem but internally it was determined that I had already sort of like worked with other startups so I they could Apple wouldn't didn't want to be seen as interesting so you were too much of a known quantity at that point yeah uh-huh. yeah yeah which yeah. was interesting to me I mean I'm sure I'm sure you've had this conversation with Hodgman at some point. You know, I wonder if I've never talked to him about this directly. Like you, he's different than a lot of, you know, again, like your flow or the woman who does AT&T commercials mm-hmm. and that like, you know, he, he he's wasn't not just an actor. He wasn't, and he wasn't going his way to be a commercial actor necessarily, right, yeah. but, but he's clearly moved beyond that, that at this point, but, but he was the, the Mac guy for a long time. Yeah. And it must be difficult to kind of weigh the, 
the positive successes of that with what it means to the rest of your career. Right. Yeah. You kind of wear it <laughs> as an overlarge badge yeah. for a while. And, you know, I think he'd probably say thing the same thing that I do about True Car, which is that it it allowed him to do so many other things. It's great for your confidence and it's great for your career and to the extent that you want to be famous because everybody kind of wants to be famous. Mm -hmm. It allows him to, it allowed him to do that for a while, but he already had this career as like a thinker and a writer and a comedian. And, uh, you know, he was correspondent on the daily show and all of these things. So I'm sure he saw it at the time as this is just a vehicle to extend his career sure. in that way. And do you, did, you know, it's up to you whether you consider that a burden yeah. or a blessing. And I think he would as well as just as anyone would, you know, flow or whoever, they would consider it a blessing at the end of their life. And net net, it all, it all, it all comes out like on top. How much of, of the sort of that, that those early days, those first few videos was really kind of being in the right place at the right time. I mean, it sounds like things cascaded, you know, you're mentioning for early projects, you're mentioning Twitter and Flipboard, mm -hmm. you know, subsequently you know two of the most square, successful square and, and square yeah, yeah okay well i never worked with twitter even like having had that conversation with jack early on like uh -huh. clearly you were where you needed to be yeah absolutely all luck 100 <laughs> percent yeah 100 percent luck where were you and what were you doing that you got on these people's radar so early i was working in visual effects i had gone to film school uh Th these are all really like anonymous things though i mean visual yeah. effects right like who knows totally. visual effects people i didn't even consider myself a director or a filmmaker anymore i'd, I'd kind of like you know i'd come to terms with not having the personality that could you know take that level of authorship or, you know, the confidence to do that because that's not, I didn't have what I saw directors around me have. So I was working in post-production, which is like you said, a very anonymous backseat type of a, a job, but I did get really excited when Twitter came around, when web 2.0 came around. That is um, a phrase that I've not heard in a very long isn't time. It? But I yeah. mean, yeah, it's just when, web, when things first started being dynamic, dynamic. And um, yeah, I always think about, at the time, anybody interested in web, web 2.0 technologies, you, we had the term Ajax to mm -hmm. describe like what Flickr did, which is like yeah. that it would load new visual data from, you know, without reloading the page, mm -hmm. which is pretty cool. That's when the web came alive. So I just got really excited about that and started dreaming up like, what are other tools that people could use? What are, I didn't even know the word startup. It was just like, Oh, I want to start a website. <laughs> you know, when, you were you were in LA at the time. Yeah, mm -hmm. I was in LA. I'd been here working in post for a while, and just being fascinated with that tech. And also, when Apple was still an underdog, you know, pre iPhone, but it was clear that there was a trajectory there. Jobs was back. And Jobs was back. There was a lot of design attention being paid to every single product they 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 came out with, and I just joined this community of obsessives who who loved talking about the stuff that was going on in technology. And the, again, this is all pre iPhone. So when I started getting interested in tech, I, at some point it surpassed my interest in media and, and in um, movies and commercials and stuff. It all just surpassed that. So, and then the iPhone came out and it, and it blew everybody's mind. Yeah. Somebody on my team, JP on my team, his dad, has been working in a like a tech 
environment for decades and like apparently just like took JP by surprise by making this pronouncement that the iPhone was maybe the most important invention of, of all mankind. And which, I mean, that's a pretty significant thing for mm-hmm. somebody that, you know, who's been working in it for, for that long. And knew who, what, you know, penicillin was. Yeah. For yeah. Good. Very good point. <laughs> then anyway, like, you know, is it, it was that, that transformative that it felt like now that, that was the time to say, okay, let's rethink what we want to do with our lives. And then it was just pure accident that I, my entry point, I'd, I'd sort of like, met a lot of people in that community because I was I I was expressing the same level of fixation that they were and like an appreciation of comedy and appreciation of just wisecracking on the internet mm-hmm. which comedians like Twitter worked for right you. which is comedians weren't doing that yet. yeah so it was just the the tech nerds that were doing it and so the community formed around those two things comedy and tech and then so i met all those people and then my way into working in the tech universe was to make little videos about tech and that that is really just that wasn't intentional it was just accidental it was like let me use the the skills and the tools that i know to say things that I want to say about technology that's developing around us. And not a lot of people were doing that in the same way. So that's what got me the the attention. And before I knew it, it was like, oh, I could actually do this for a living. I mean, I think the idea at, at that point, the idea of having a commercial that would exist only online was still relatively novel. Yeah, it totally was. Now that you put it like that, because and, and what was it was the differentiate differentiating about it was like giving paying the attention giving it the level of production quality that a tv commercial would have but with a low budget and and destined for for the web i mean it was absolutely a precursor to kickstarter right i mean that was the lesson that they learned was that the production of that video is so important to the success of a project Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Cause they put it front and center in, in the most interesting way. I mean, they were, what they were doing is fascinating because Vimeo was first, mm-hmm. right? Vimeo yep. was the first, like, truly almost, you can't really say native because so was YouTube, but Vimeo was the, the video destination whose purpose was truly for showcasing the best of video, of digital video. It, it's, a, it's, yeah. I mean, I, I was, I was discussing this with somebody recently because they actually had a really big ad campaign. I don't know if it's out here too, but in New York, they like, plastered all over the place yeah we don't really see that out here because because i mean vimeo is a new york company yeah i was asking a coworker actually um where vimeo stood right now Mm -hmm. um because you know in the way that like google became catch-all search and internet like youtube just became catch-all video Mm -hmm. they're still trying to go after i think that kind of creator space Mm -hmm. but I, i just don't know if that specialized category really makes a lot of sense now I mean, I think it makes sense still. I think it'll just always be more marginal than they wish sure. it were. Then just yeah. like wishing that Vimeo could capture more of the market than 10%, let's say, is like wishing that the most interesting content was generated by more than 10% of the people. Yeah. It's never going to be because that's the fact of humanity, <laughs> you know, sure. you know, less than 10% of people make the most interesting things. Yeah. I don't know. The content revolution or whatever has been wonderful from the standpoint of the ability of everybody being able to, to create stuff and, you know, obviously marginalized voices being able to, to be heard, but it's gotta be 
for somebody who has spent so much, you know, blood, sweat and tears in making the best videos as possible, it has to be kind of rough on the psyche to see just really terrible videos like float up to the top. Where do you stand on like a Twitch? I think I'm still I think I'm too old to completely understand the appeal of it. But Mm -hmm. that's kind of the most popular Mm -hmm. video thing in the world right now is people watching people play games. Yeah, I'm too old to appreciate it or understand it as well. I don't think I've ever watched a Twitch feed mm-hmm. um, or stream, but I don't really consider that video content. I, I just consider it informa- like it's a different medium of information. So I don't, I don't really think they're comparable. And I and I couldn't get upset that right now in our culture, that kind of information medium is being given so much attention. I don't think I could get really upset. I could get upset if it was like all those people were watching, you know, gross violence and sexual debasement. Which, to be fair, is, <laughs> is absolutely... That what it is? Well, no, that not specifically, <laughs> but that, that that is absolutely... Those are all very popular content forms. Yeah, yeah. so, yeah, I mean, guess, I guess the nature of the content that's being consumed could yeah. be troubling, but the fact that that is a, is a popular format of information I couldn't get mm-hmm. upset with because, you know, people are going to learn however they learn. And, yeah. you know, we can use... We can define learning in, in so many different ways. Learning just doesn't doesn't just mean like sitting down and watching a short film, um, thank God, <laughs> you know, or like appreciating cinema. Uh, it doesn't just mean going to Vimeo and watching music videos mm-hmm. and art films. What you're making are you're, you're making commercials. I mean, mm-hmm. you're making a commercial product. You know, mm-hmm. you're making a, a capitalist thing that is oh, like 100. Yeah, I mean, you're trying to make the best one you can, but it, it literally exists to sell people on a thing. Yeah, and like our work can never be featured on staff picks for that reason mm. which is okay that's fine with me i mean if there were a vimeo for commercials then maybe we would go after that kind of attention there but i appreciate that that's not why vimeo exists and i appreciate that they stick to their principles in that way is it or can it be creatively fulfilling in the same way as making your own art film to be making a commercial and it's especially when you're it sounds like you've got some freedom but ultimately you're always working for a client yeah, it can be that fulfilling, but I, I have nothing to compare it to. I, I but I, I'm about to find out because I'm just about to shoot my first music video mm. for the for the pure love of it, and not because not because anyone approached me or not because a label came to me, but because I've over the last year or two found a new fascination with like or, or, or reconnected the music with the music that I love, which is mostly jazz and the crossover of jazz and hip hop. Mm. And there is, for 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 many reasons, I, I now understand why you and Jesse Thorne are friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've we've wrote out about music a lot, but uh, just in terms of sheer musicianship, there's a lot going on right now in the world that I think probably like in the popular culture, people aren't really aware of unless they're like paying attention to artists like Kendrick Lamar. Mm-hmm. Um, but especially around him, for instance, in in L.A., there's this universe of musicians that are doing mind-blowing next level Mm -hmm. stuff in terms of like blowing out the possibilities of the music that had never been done achieved or possible prior to this generation and it's fun to like i've just had a few different conversations with people recently friends uh who kind of like identify and you know a lot of musician friends that identify that uh the tools have evolved to the point to allow 
people to make different kind of music, but also the output of that music has then fed back into the, the old school traditional analog yeah. musicianship that in a way that you see performers, especially young performers out there that are able to reproduce the chop, the, the chops of electronic musicianship, but using acoustic in- instruments and also, there's almost like there's a higher level of mathematical thinking about you about um, this music right now in terms of like harmonic possibilities mm-hmm. that hadn't existed before. And if you go to, uh, you sound like a prog guy right now. I know, <laughs> I, seriously, I know, I know, I know, I, and I probably am the, of the wrong era. But this is such an, an exciting yeah. time to to be paying attention to that music. So I discovered a couple of artists that are make that are in that are not only making that type of music but are also directly in that Kendrick Lamar universe, that Thundercat universe. Yeah. And, Flying Lotus. Yeah, the yeah. Flying Lotus. Like and so I got in touch with them and I said, "Hey, I adore your music. It's blowing my mind. It's like nothing I've ever heard. I've I've and I want to make a film." Like what would traditionally be called a music video, mm. except jazz doesn't usually get this type of music video. So can I do that? Can I lend my resources to you and we make a film together and um, you tell me what track you want it to be for? And so I met with them and they got super excited. And, and ever since then, it's been a lot of momentum, like to bringing in crew that I usually work on the commercial stuff with. But these are crew that are incredibly tremendously artful, creative, talented people, but they don't get to express all of that, that creativity in the commercials. So I get to like approach them and say, Hey, let's work on something that's got no commercial is commercialism in it whatsoever. Let's just make something for the art and the love of it. Is this through sandwich? Well, I mean, my production, my production company is sandwiched, so yeah. that's who's going to be producing it. It's that tough thing of asking people to like, hey, let's do a thing for the love of it. Yeah, but honestly, people around here especially enjoy that opportunity mm. probably more so than let's just work on this commercial because we have to and yeah. because it pays the bills. We all pitched in and made this how to vote video with Demi Adujuibe. Uh, come midterm election time and it was the most fun anybody in this hmm. company has had working on anything. question isn't why you want to do it. I mean, that's obvious, but the question is, I guess, what what took so long? You know, why why are you finally now doing something just for the sheer fun of it? I mean, if you want to get deep about it, uh, there's a lot, I'm 41 and there's a lot of transformation going on in my life right yeah. now. These are the things, you know, that most people, most creative people are exploring pretty early on. Sure, yeah. And, and you sort of I'm jumped headlong woman. into capitalism. For sure, because capitalism is where the money is. Sure, you live, you know, you live in Los Angeles. I mean, it makes sense. And, and I, I did too, you know, I, I had to make tough decisions or early on of writing for myself versus, you know, going to these publications and I ended up on the latter side of things. Mm -hmm. I guess, I guess it makes sense from the standpoint of like, you can finally afford yourself the ability to do this. I mean, you have the resources to do it. Yeah, for sure. That's the reality of it. Um, But also I don't mind having spent, um, you know, six years working in visual effects, learning skills, Mm -hmm. and then 10 years running this company because I did get pure joy out of it. It's not like, Oh, you know, commercials such a drag. It's, it's it's actually unfortunate that commercials has that stigma. Certainly, when I went to film school, nobody talked about commercials, and I I was there from '96 to 2000, and maybe people were talking about music videos being an interesting creative um, opportunity, but nobody was 
in my circle anyway was talking about hey explore your filmmaking through commercials and now i mean music videos had already had their moment they, yeah. they had there was a while there where you know like michelle gondry spike jones sure. like all of the great directors were being fed through music videos but mm-hmm. that had already probably come and gone by that point yeah it seemed to be really keeping to music videos and cinema without any like yeah. intermediary between um you know through commercials i don't think people you know you've got the like the can lion and stuff like that and sure there's always kind of an awareness that some commercials can be clever and funny or really creative or make you cry but at least again in my circles nobody was really saying i want as a filmmaker i want to set out to learn how to make the best commercials and really like triumph in the context of advertising. Nobody was really saying that, that I knew of and certainly not in film school. So it wasn't until I got out here and started working in effects that suddenly, like most of the jobs I was participating in or on set for were commercial jobs. And then it was fun to see behind the scenes that as much care and obsession can be put into all of those decisions in making a commercial as there would be in making a feature film or a music video or something. And when it comes down to it, if you like being obsessive about those things then you're going to like your job, if you're making, if you know, if your if your job is to be obsessive about commercials, you're lucky from the standpoint that it sounds like, especially things picking up as quickly as they did, that you've been able to choose the people you work with. I mean, last time we, we spoke, like, you you know, it was very, that was very much the case at that point where mm-hmm. there were a lot more people asking you to do jobs than sure. you were taking jobs. Right. Um, and, like, yeah, again, just very lucky in that regard that still the, the main primary motivation of doing any job that we do is about do we firmly believe that there's value in this product? Mm. Cause if there's not, then there's no way to extract any value and translate it into filmmaking. The business model has been interesting. I don't know if this is still the case, but I was going back and reading. This is the case when I spoke to you and I was actually reading an interview. Connie at our site did with you yeah. four years ago now at this mm. point. Um, but the idea of, of equity is important mm. in that one, you have to believe that it's going to be a success in order to take equity from them. Mm-hmm. And two, you're going to invest more passion into a product if the, their success and ultimately the money you're making hinges on how successful your product is. Yeah. Yeah. That's about it. And we do that still. We don't do as much of it, certainly, as in the heyday of mm-hmm. venture capital. But still, it's like, identifying the ones early on that are like, okay, they're just about to raise their series a, or, you know, they're, they're launching and they're looking for opportunities to trade work for equity. I definitely don't get as many companies that are proposing that to me anymore, Mm -hmm. but it's like, I feel like the average is maybe two per year at this point, whereas it used to be, closer to 10 per year of taking doing projects with an equity component. And a lot of that is just being more selective because seeing so many of them that I felt like had full, like let's go, let's move like freight train progress, you know, momentum yeah. and, and promise um, not materialize. <laughs> or, sure. you know, so, you know, you start looking at that as like, you know, throwing money away. Uh, and I'm not a gambler. I don't like, playing cards. I don't like playing games. I don't like investing. I don't like 
you know, speculating on the market. So I just want to be really, you know, judicious about doing that kind of thing. I've spoken to so many serial entrepreneurs, CEOs who are like incredibly excited about that product project and it gets you really excited about it. Oh yeah. And you have to be, I mean, you absolutely have to be pragmatic. You, you understand, you know, you, you start to, you begin to understand like why all of these companies are just pumping money into to products and why they're like losing money hand over fist is because it's really exciting and you want to be in on something from the, the ground floor, but it sounds like you got burned more than a few times. Yeah. You start to believe stories, you yeah. know, like that's my job as a filmmaker is to be a storyteller. So you, you look for the things in founders that are the things that you value, which is the ability to tell a good story. Does that give you a better bullshit detector though? Mm, no, I think I still believe a good storyteller now as much as I yeah. did five, six years ago. It's just that I have a little bit more awareness of the landscape and the market that I did back then. So you kind of like, if you hear a story now that you heard already three years ago, mm-hmm. or you've heard yeah. a dozen different times and you, you kind of like pick and choose what to ignore. But it's that, that thing, the phenomenon that you're talking about, the reality distortion field is real. And, and when you come across a founder that, has the ability to create that distortion field it's powerful you know uh, uh, the power of a good a founder to tell a good story is the same as the f- the power of a politician to tell a good story um and we want to believe these people because yeah. who doesn't love good stories we got 8 years of obama you know and right. however you feel about how that turned out like he was he was a good storyteller he was a beautiful storyteller yeah. absolutely and like it or not, Trump is a good storyteller too. <laughs> yeah, he's just got a very different story to tell. He tells it. horror stories. <laughs> <laughs> I was going through the, the page, and um, you've Starbucks was a client. I mean, that's that's uh-huh. seems different than the normal startup. Yeah, but it was it was almost like a mm, a little bit of an inflection point with the kind of clients we worked with being more like brands rather than products because a lot of our clients, even at that time, that was like maybe three years ago. A lot of our clients were products that were discovering their brand. What does that mean exactly? I, so I'm a startup and I have a tech or uh, okay. an innovation or an idea that I need to turn into a product, put everything I have into that product. And I sort of like the brand is second secondary to that. And a they lot, didn't know what story to tell. Yeah. Basically. Yes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And that's sort of, that's, that identifies like why a lot of them would come to us is like help them mm-hmm. tell the story of their product. So development of the brand is sort of secondary to that. But you're talking about Starbucks. They've already got, you know, many decades of their brand story being told. And now they're a brand in search of a product because they want, they've got, you know, innovators dilemma. They've, they, they need to figure out how to stay relevant and like refresh their stores and refresh the, the user, the customer experience and figure out how to, keep themselves relevant constantly, constantly, constantly because of shareholders and whatnot. And so they have a whole digital marketing department, a digital product department, and they're the ones that come to us and say, like, we need people to know how our app works and, like, why people who go to Starbucks every day but don't take out their phone, don't use the app, don't know it exists. We need to give them a reason to mm. believe that the app is a better way to go to your Starbucks every day and whatever. That brand came to us to tell their product story. And I think that, that that represents more of the kind of work that we're doing at this point is like they have a brand that everybody knows about already and an existing product. And they just need our help in sort of 
like translating the values of that product in ways people can understand them that translates then to a lot of people clicking and buying and visiting the website and all downloading the app, whatever it is. Um, so when you say it was an inflection point, you mean specifically for your company, that mm-hmm. was when the transition moved towards where you're at now? Yeah, because it was like things had cooled off, I think, at that point in terms of the speculation of mm-hmm. like finding the next unicorn. Yeah, the the, the the venture capital seemed to be decreasing a little bit near the, like the heat. And then it was mostly about like, okay, so there are all these established brands out there or, you know, brands that are funded out there and they... I mean, like the one thing that hasn't changed is nobody's saying like, oh, yeah, video is not that important. You know, everybody still says video is important. And the definition of video changes because video five years ago now means a 30 second spot on TV, but it's still video. Do you feel like you've become kind of a more traditional agency from that standpoint then that you're working with more traditional clients? Yeah, for sure. Um, A traditional agency, no. I think the definition of creative or ad agency is changing all the time um, by necessity because the um, traditional big ad agency model isn't really it's it's not necessarily able to adapt to what's happening in the product space so it's kind of coming from both sides so like in a sense you are moving more towards the traditional in terms of the clients that you're working with but on the flip side maybe the rest of the world is kind of coming around to where you are yeah i, I would say so i would say that yeah, it's all circling around the same idea that I guess what's changed most, we haven't changed all that much mm-hmm. in terms of like our motivations and our process, not that much, but our creative and strategic process has been become a lot more formalized than it used to be because we used to absolutely undervalue the ideas behind the videos and sort of like throw that in as like a... What's an example of that? Well... I mean, like like from the, from the standpoint of like, you know, maybe you would almost be kind of mocking it a little bit. Not mocking it. No, not at all. But like not undervaluing it in the sense of like not believing that it's important, mm-hmm. but forgetting to formalize it in a way that involved the client and indicated to not only to our client, but to ourselves that we need to be putting a lot of attention into that process that gets us to the point where we have an idea that turns into a script. Whereas like we always had a script, you have to have a script when you shoot a video, Mm -hmm. unless it's a documentary or something or a testimonial, you have to have a script. And I always wrote scripts, but the first time I sat, I went to the square office at the Chronicle building and I set up the camera and, you know, sat down and, introduce square i wrote the script there on a like in a conference room i wrote it just you know (laughs) jotted down this handed it over how does this look these are the things i'm going to say because this is how i understand i understand what square is well that little that piece right there this is how i understand what square is and these are the words i'm going Mm -hmm. to use to explain that or you know to turn that into a video that's not something you do in a conference room in a half hour. That's something that takes it can take many, many months and millions of dollars. I've seen the white – there are actual whiteboards. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. And we don't like – I mean our, our process is still very like let's brainstorm and yeah. think it out and conversational. I've always had this sort of like fantasy, this weird – outsider perspective on what happens at creative agencies, which is that, you know, you, you sit in the nest at Wyden Kennedy 
and you throw an idea ball back mm-hmm. and forth and everybody's barefoot and you know you've got like 16 people sitting in the roomatorium imaginating with their rain sticks and that that's how good ideas come about we have like i guess a version of that which mm-hmm. is that we're all fucking busy all day long and then we have to carve out a half an hour in the day because we can't ignore it anymore and we have to sit in, in that we call it the living room just in the middle of our office there it does we, look like an apartment yeah, yeah. Um, it's got the warehouse vibe, um, the industrial brick and beams vibe. And we sit down and we just like talk about, we talk about wh- how we understand what the, what the ideas are. Yeah. So I guess what's changed for us in terms of like maturing or growing up in from a video production company into an actual creative agency is just like learning, n- telling the client that that process exists and that it should be valued and that it, you should pay us for it because it's really important. And most of all, that's the thing that we do that not everybody else does. You can't hand Starbucks a piece of binder paper ripped out of a notebook. No. Like it just, it just, it just won't work. I mean, they, you know, maybe they appreciate your, your plucky charm, but there's, there's a, a limit to that. Right. I mean, I was like, I, we pitched one company that shall not be named one of these D, D direct to consumer brands a couple of years ago before we'd really gotten our shit together and mm-hmm. pitched, figured out our pitch process and our decks and everything like that I used to pride myself on like our creative process being that I or Josh, our writer or somebody would write out a few paragraphs of text on a page, give it to them and say, this is our treatment. Do you understand the idea? Because if you like it, we'll turn this into a script. I prided myself on the efficiency of that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we got paid to develop creative by a direct-to-consumer brand. We brainstormed. We turned all that writing into, you know, a couple pages of text with a couple of images, put it in a PDF, handed it to them. And, you know, they decided to go in a different direction, finger quotes. And I asked the guy at the time, because I thought we were a lock, I asked the marketing guy, can we get on the phone? And, you know, it'd mean a lot to me if you could explain to me why you went in a different direction, which is an opportunity you don't always get. It's very rare that a client takes you up on that. You don't always feel comfortable asking. I usually do. (laughs) Like, I usually do, but I always, it's that thing where you, it's like a cold email. You think you're not going to get a response, and usually you're right. And then the clients who do respond, they exhibit such generosity in doing so because it's like, it's very uncomfortable for them to say like, <laughs> this is actually. You could put them in an, as awkward a spot as possible. Right. It's like saying, why didn't you want to go on a date with me? Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. these are the reasons I found you unattractive. Yeah. Uh, that's a tangent. But I got on the phone with this guy and he was okay. He was not great, but he said, you know, like I, I was like, why did we pay all this money for this piece of like for a PDF? And I. It's like sort of took me aback and I actually got sort of like defensive on the phone with him. And I said, well, you're not paying us to put together the most beautiful treatment document. You're, you're paying, paying us for the, for the quality of the idea. Yeah. But still, like, even that was disingenuous because I knew what he was talking about. I knew like the thing that a client wants is they, they want to believe that you're giving this your full attention. They're, but even beyond that, he's got his bosses he needs to show it to. Totally. Totally. So – that that's what that's what can be frustrating is sometimes yeah. in our creative process you land on the first idea right away you know that idea is the right one it came to you first and then you have to go through this futile mm-hmm. exercise of developing five more ideas on top of that just to justify the first idea does working on the music videos i mean is that directly related to this sort of more formal process and the fact that you're working with clients that have stricter parameters to work within 
Yeah, absolutely. hundred, hundred percent. There's nobody telling me what to do. And the, the artist is like, the artist is saying like, yeah, I want to sign off on what we shoot, but ultimately if it's, I'm bringing my own resources to this. Mm-hmm. So I've even taken that out of the equation. You know, they can, if I develop this idea really far and then they say, this doesn't feel right, then I don't have that much choice, but to respond, you know, to agree with them. Yeah, like we're as we mature as an agency. Yes, you're absolutely right. There's more constraints around what you can do, and there's the type of agency that there's a type of like big sort of extremely reputable agent creative agency out there. The I don't know the seventy two and Sunny, for instance, that big brands will go to to spend millions of dollars for them for for that agency to take risks creative risks and do things that nobody was expecting that is absolutely going to get attention because it was unique, but we're not that agency. None of our clients at this point are coming to us saying, blow it out, do something that Mm -hmm. nobody's expecting. Be weird. You have total freedom, (laughs) you know, and here's uh, a lot of money. Nobody's coming to us to say that they're mostly coming to us to say, Take the value that we know exists in our brand and our product and translate it in your in your unique way into something that performs really well for us. There's a lot of risk in there for for their for our clients because a lot of them are spending money they're not comfortable with spending, and so when they when they're um, agreeing or signing off on the creative that we develop for them, they're doing so with full faith that it's going to perform well. When you're when you're working with those constraints, you don't get to take a huge amount of risk. And that can honestly make it a little bit of more of a drag for mm-hmm. us on our especially on the creative team. The producers like working on we've got a production department, creative department, and a post department. The production department doesn't care quite as much about the the creative risk taking as as the creative department. The post department, you know, they they there's still a, a a lot of our, um, craftsmanship that goes on in their process, to, regardless of whether there's a ton of risk, creative risk taking. But it's those of us that in this department, the creative department, that have to like really study the brief and like really make sure that we're adhering to the guidelines set out for what is going to perform well, what the market is going to respond the best to. And that's not technically how art is made. <laughs> there you go. That was the face of truecar.com, Adam Lonely Sandwich Lissagore. You can check out his stuff over at adamlissagore.com and all of these sandwich videos over at sandwichvideo.com. Really enjoyed that conversation. Thanks so much to him for taking the time to do that. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening to the program. If you like the show, there are a number of ways to support us. You can rate and review us on iTunes, Broad Google Podcasts, and Spotify, YouTube now. Like us on Facebook. If you have any feedback, it's rolcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Tumblr. Yes, we are still on Tumblr at rolcast.tumblr.com. And that's about all I got for this week, so stick around because we're going to be back just about this time next week with another episode of R.I.Y.L. 